My name is Rohan San. And my name is Daniel Olaya. And we'd like to welcome you to the Aerospace Medicine Podcast. We are here to inform, involve, and inspire anyone who is interested in the field of aerospace medicine. So we are extremely privileged today to have our guest, Dr. Terry Martin, on the podcast. Now, his CV is absolutely extensive, but I've tried my very best and get it to the key little bits before he expands upon it later on in our conversation. But just to give you an idea, he is an absolute pioneer in the world of aerospace and retrieval medicine. He first qualified as a doctor and a pilot within a month of each other, then spent 23 years within the Royal Air Force. He specialized initially within emergency medicine and before moving to intensive care medicine, as well as anaesthetics. He has been instrumental in the development of aeromedical responses, both in the UK and abroad, as well as being a mentor to a certain Dr. Daniel Alaya. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> mentor and uh, actually inspiration for, what, uh, for much of what I'm doing today. So without further ado, welcome Terry. Thank you, gentlemen. It's uh, great to be here. So Terry, it's a very extensive CV, which we've just very briefly touched upon. But can you just talk us through your journey and what's gotten you to where you are today? Yeah, of course, I think uh, my journey starts like a, a lot of people uh, in childhood when you see your first airplane or you go on your first flight. And mm -hmm. that really cemented for me as a, as a young chap of around about nine or 10 years old that I was going to be a pilot. Sadly, after that, though, I became quite a sickly child and I was in and out of the hospital and um, I knew uh, in my heart eventually that I would never pass the grade medically. Mm. Uh, and at the same time, I became fascinated with medicine. So I thought, well, if I can't be a pilot, I'll be a doctor. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> and then, of course, uh, I had these dual sort of um, ambitions and found out that the Royal Air Force uh, would take medical students in on cadet ships and teach them to fly. So I thought, if I um, don't tell them that I've been unwell in childhood, maybe they won't notice. <laughs> and and uh, it's embarrassing uh, to say it now, but actually I kept it very quiet. I, I uh, By the time I got to medical school, I was a lot fitter and healthier than I'd ever been. And I realized that the more I learned about medicine is that if you keep yourself healthy um, and nobody looks at your past records for when you're age about 11 and 12, that there's nothing to stop you flying. Mm -hmm. So that was my starting point. Wow. See, I want to draw on something that you just said, actually, that I thought was fascinating. The, the fact that if you prepare yourself and your body well enough for something you can do it i just well i absolutely wow. agree with what you just yeah. said daniel because uh, um, i use this as a fundamental point I, I mentor a lot of young training doctors and sometimes medical students and uh you know my my one of my lo most loved phrases is you know the world is is full of opportunities and you put your arms out and your hands open and you grab them because you can do anything that you want to do given enough mm -hmm. opportunities i mean i sometimes i use myself as an example um you know poor kid from a family where um i was the black sheep because i was the one that eventually got to university nobody else in the family did there were no doctors in my family mm -hmm. um, mm. and i left school without 
qualifications to get to medical school. So once I'd made the decision to go to medical school, I had to start all over again. So that put me quite a few years behind for my uh, colleagues. Mm. It took me uh, a year to go back and do what was then called O-levels, then two years to do A-levels, then a year off to do a few other mm-hmm. bits and pieces uh, to strengthen my uh, CV uh, before being accepted to University College London. Um, hey. <laughs> so w- within within medicine, you, you've had a, a very ad- adventurous uh, career, and I mean, from from the outside, it, it it looks extremely strategic and well thought out, and and actually looks almost like a work of art if you look at it, you step back. But tell us more about how you engage with medicine and you move forward through specialties. Well, I think I could go back a little bit further and, and say that uh, the, the final reason uh, that I decided to go into medicine was after my last episode of being a patient and inpatient, mm. I was out of school, out of work, or in a, actually in a very boring job, and I became a nurse. I just mm. joined up as a nurse. And okay. then I realized that Actually, I didn't like nursing very much, but I, I was fascinated <laughs> by what these, these guys in white suits, uh, white coats were doing, and uh, I could be a doctor. And, of course, all my nurse colleagues laughed at me and said, yeah, there's no way you're ever going to be a doctor. And, of course, that strengthened my resolve. So, um, what, I think what you're saying, Terry, and I agree with you completely, is that you know what you are when you're 16, 17, 18 doesn't define you for, for your life, right? You're a prime example of that. You mentioned yourself that you – maybe didn't get the best O-levels because of various reasons and you started off as a nurse and already there seems to be this almost divide between nurses and doctors, which shouldn't really be the case anyway because we're all working part of a team. But then, you know, you you decided that actually I can do this thing that everyone else can do and then you decided to take a step. Yes, it was a bit later in life than other people had done, but you can do it. And actually, I feel like we see so many examples of people who have gone in to do medicine later in their lives and actually they're probably some of the best doctors that that I know anyways. Rohan, um, you said, I believe you mentioned if you're 16, 17, um, you know, you, you, you've got your whole life in front of you. That's what oh, I'm paraphrasing you. But I, I go back even further than that because having uh, achieved medical school, uh, achieved qualification and then being accepted into the Royal Air Force and then getting a pilot's license, um, I was posted as a GP which didn't particularly fascinate me as a career, but it was the only way I could carry on flying in the Air Force right. um, and as a flight medical officer on uh, an air base. So I, I asked to be moved to RAF Shawbury, which was and helicopter. still is a helicopter training base. Mm-hmm. And um, after a flight in a Harrier just before that, I was, given, I was given the controls for 45 minutes. Um, I have I've jumped a bit there. I had learned to fly the jet props and the hawk in between those. Yeah. <laughs> Straight from the bulldog as it was then. <laughs> but but just I, anyone who doesn't know, the bulldog is a tiny little prop aircraft and a Harrier is definitely not. So usually in flight training, you go from um, a small prop and then you go to a slightly faster big prop. Right nowadays, it's slightly faster big prop and then a bigger a bigger jet. And then finally to your frontline jets. So that was why we found it really funny that Terry had insinuated he'd gone from a bulldog, a tiny little prop aircraft, to then a big bad boy Harrier jet. Yes, I apologise for darting back and forth across my uh, the, the map of my career. But uh, just, just to say, the reason that I went into helicopters is because I knew that at the age that I was by then, remember I'm going to be five years old, older than all my colleagues, the contemporaries, mm. because of 
starting my O-levels and A-levels again. Um, so being five years older, I was beyond the age at 30 um, at which you couldn't be trained to be a Harrier pilot because everybody at that age fails. They just pass their best uh, in terms of the learning, the steep learning curve. And I knew from my, bio, my already my um, aviation and medical experience in the RAF at that stage that I was never going to make the grade. Mm. So I jumped ship before I was pushed out over <laughs> uh, and, and then asked to go to helicopters. Mm. I have to say, the RAF, of course, thinks there's something mentally wrong with you <laughs> if you don't want to fly fast jets. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I want to draw on is the fact that you went into GP and, and you, you said that that was because you get to do more aviation stuff as a GP and that's exactly what they wanted. But if you had your choice, if you had your selection of specialities you could go straight into, what would it be within the, the RAF or outside the RAF within aviation? What would it be if you went straight into that? If I'd maintained a career of pure medicine and, and not gone into the aerospace medicine, then I would have chosen anesthesia much mm. earlier than I actually did. And the next part of this uh, sort of roadmap which goes all over there was being a gp in germany at uh, the very place in the very time of a very nasty large catastrophe at the Ramstein air base i was going to say yeah, had, yeah. Um, i was the first doctor at the scene because i was literally at the scene already uh where we had 76 um, deaths, well, 72 on the day, I think it was, and mm. all that died so mm. shortly after. And, and, and over 700 um, casualties. Yeah. Would it be all right if you just drew a little bit more context there for people who maybe aren't familiar with that tragedy? Yes, this was um, an air show on August the 28th, 1988. And it's, uh, these are dates and times and, and um, images that I'll never forget. Um, yeah, very, very fabulous day was had it was beautifully sunny the air show acts were uh, gorgeous and the italian aerobatic display team the frecci tricolori were about to start their act by flying a great big heart shape with two formations of aircraft forming a heart in the sky on each side of the heart and a solo aircraft to fly through like an arrow penetrating through the heart mm. except the aircraft flying through the middle got his um, visual clues and his calculations wrong, and he crashed into the crossing pairs of the other two formations oh. at the bottom. Mm -hmm. So in, therefore causing a number of collisions within the formation, and the falling aircraft also fell on to the, the disaster response team on the airbase wow. at Ramstein, taking in, out the helicopter and killing the crew of the helicopter on the ground before they could even respond. So there were a number of casualties on the in the audience because the the aircraft was actually the one that was flying through the heart or hit the passing formation was pointing at the crowd. So the falling aircraft mm. fell into the crowd, and that was the cause of the of the large number of civilian casualties. And of course, air shows changed from that day on, and my life changed. From that day on, very dramatically. Wow. What did you do? You were the first doctor on the scene. Like, what kicked in? What were you thinking about? What were your actions? Well, uh, at that stage, 
none of us had done trauma, uh, ATLS or any other form of trauma course. There wasn't a system uh, at that stage. Well, it was a system just developing in the United States. There was no ALS. Wow. ALS, there was no ATLS, there was no ACLS. None of the ALSs wow. were in existence in 1988. <laughs> so you had to do what you knew you could do. And for me, having done very little medicine outside of general practice, um, I did what I could in terms of pain relief and putting up IV infusions and giving uh, other volunteers from the crowd little jobs to do, like support this patient, talk to that patient, cool this person's burns, that sort of thing. It was, for me, an eye-opener that I really didn't have a clue. I did not know how to handle this. Yes, I was getting on with it. I was doing what I could. Um, I had practiced intubations before, but I wasn't in any condition. I wasn't prepared to um, try and anesthetize people who were in pain and clearly needed intubation, but I didn't have that skill set. There was equipment there, but I couldn't use it. I decided that day that I was leaving general practice and I was going to get all the skills I needed to be able to cope in this situation like wow. this again. An event like that, going through that, really sparked something. Clearly. Yes. Uh, I had never heard of post-traumatic stress disorder at that time. I knew about shell shock, mm. of course, but the post-traumatic stress disorder hadn't actually been used. But uh, being that I was on working on with the United States Air Force mm. at that time as an exchange, that all my American colleagues, and I had a few British guys, RAF guys, that were working in more part of the unit, we were all taken into a large hall and were told about PTSD by a American military psychiatrist. And I remember thinking, "This is wasting my time. I've got to get back out and get a get a clinic going. Um, mm-hmm. I just none of this is going to happen to me." And within hours, I realised I couldn't concentrate, I couldn't focus, I didn't want to talk about what happened because nobody would understand me unless they were there. Any loud noise and all the hair on the back of my neck stood up. And I started um, drifting off, daydreaming about day's events the day before, and my nightmares said it all, really. And I could not be anywhere near aircraft, uh, fast jets flying low for a long time. And even for many years, watching air displays, which involve large formations of, of aircraft, would give me the shivers. I'd want to go away somewhere and just wow. get away from it. So PTSD, I realize, is a real thing. And it you doesn't need to be a disaster for someone to get PTSD. One event, one casualty, somebody close to you or some event that really affects you can cause the same symptoms. Wow. Mm. Yes, definitely a, a somber note there, um, but c- clearly you turned it into a, a positive thing by by taking the actions that you did and you know really really turning it around. I think what's also interesting is that uh, obviously a big part of aviation medicine, aerospace medicine, is air crash investigation. Um, so I've I recently learned within the past few years, and of course understanding why exactly that crash happened, what was going through um, you know the pilot's mind or what perhaps had happened before yeah absolutely right daniel the um the whole business of this what we now call human factors was just about evolving at that stage the late 70s with big air crashes like the uh, two boeing 747s at tenerife 
that was the fundamental start oh, yeah. of uh, what we now call human factors. And the application of that, of course, started off as something called CRM or crew resource management. Uh, now, um, mm-hmm. actually, this it's a fascinating subject and something mm-hmm. that I've taught now for many years, as well as many of the other things that I that I taught I teach. But we can always link things back to the psychology of human factors. If I can just continue with a little bit on the long and winding road of my uh, life map, um, uh, my next posting had been planned from Ramstein Air Base to Farnborough, to the Institute of Aviation Medicine that was there for for decades. Um, Mm -hmm. So um, my first job actually was in the Department of Biodynamics, which means accelerations, crash restraint, crash worthiness, and so on, and mm. crash investigation. And so, uh, and I had oh, been involved wow. in the Rammstein follow-up investigation, but also I was being invited to give presentations on Rammstein and also on other disasters and, and the whole business around human factors and so on. And I have to say that when I watch the video back, I still get the hairs at the back of my neck standing up and the shivers and the croaky voice. Mm. So it doesn't really ever go away. Wow. But still, it's um, it's pretty remarkable that you were able to, uh, as Daniel kind of alluded to, you tried to, I, w- I don't think it's fair to say that you moved past it. Uh, obviously, I'm taking words and you can correct me if wrong, but you were at least able to put, that energy into some sort of positive spin and obviously the most positive thing that you can do from that is to be able to make sure it doesn't happen again how how was that how could you be able to look past that and how did that work well the investigation for me uh, was very positive i was continuing to do something which was going to end in some good Mm. uh, and people were going to learn from it of the day I was very disappointed at how much I was able to do, how much equipment I had, how many people I could help. Um, and I, I sort of bore the scars of that for many years. And mm. so that's what drove me to, for instance, become one of the very first ATLS instructors in the UK. Mm. The, the same for ACLS, of course, which is the predecessor to, um, to ALS. And the same with the paediatrics. I did the, the first ever instructor courses in the UK on those topics and then um the whilst doing aerospace medicine at farnborough uh i had to keep my clinical skills current because mm. um i felt i needed to pick up these skills so i actually studied emergency medicine whilst i was there at farnborough did my frcs in emergency medicine completed that uh worked part-time became a consultant believe it or not as you could in those days in before there was a specialty in emergency medicine and that really helped for a while then it it became more important to take that next step and become an intensivist Mm. and going back to those years the only way to become an intensivist at that time was to become an anesthetist and so anesthesia was my next calling So I want to draw on the fact that you said take the next step, and that can be seen as quite controversial, actually. Um, <laughs> yes, let me explain, if I may. My passion, whilst I was at the Institute of Aviation Medicine, became neurosciences. I was fascinated by head injuries, uh, what happened when you go unconscious, and I was given the opportunity to do a master's in neuroscience in a 
an emerging technology called functional magnetic resonance imaging, which of course nobody had heard of in those days. <laughs> and I an did, emerging technology. Yeah, it was an emerging <laughs> technology. And in fact, I did my master's uh, thesis on the technique and worked with some excellent people um, at King's. And <clears throat> I was given the project uh, of understanding unconsciousness. And then I realized that's very difficult if you don't actually know what consciousness is. Mm. So I used new techniques of fMRI to look at conscious processing in the three areas of input, output, and, and central processing. So just to kind of backtrack a little bit, because I know we're jumping around from here and there. So, you know, you graduated a doctor and a pilot in 1981. You then go through, you know, you go through the various process of pilot training, and obviously you're doing your training as a doctor at the same sort of time then, or are you... How was it, it split between your time as a doctor and a pilot when you were a flying medical officer? I was very lucky to have detachments for flying, um, but, and I was also very lucky that I was on a unique training program. So I, it, it wasn't a standard wings training program that right. um, medical officer pilots now get, or, or in, in fact even did get at the time. Because I'd opted mm. to, um, to go into the helicopter world, I was being taught by the Central Flying School um, helicopter training and um, by the instructors who taught the instructors. So, ah. so it was it was a very different and bespoke training program that I had. But of course, it did mean that I did not come out with pilots, general pilots, general duties pilots' wings. But I had the flight medical ah. officers' wings, which is um, I we used to call them budgie wings. They're not quite so grand, but they're you know they're still an achievement <laughs> and they still. They, they still show that you you know you have the aptitude to to fly and you've been given the experience to uh, and the opportunities to fly, which is wonderful. Right. Was that a pathway that you that you went through? Was that a recognised pathway, or was that a sort of bespoke um, DIY one that that you sort of figured out yourself? Yeah, with a lot of help from my friends, as the Beatles would say. Uh, do you remember those? Uh, um, <laughs> yes. The the idea of Volunteering to come off the fast jet program was hard to swallow, so I had to have something else. So I, I did actually use all the the networking that I could possibly do to get myself on the helicopter program, uh, and that's what came of it. So I, I'm probably the only person, certainly the only person I know of, that completed the flight medical officer program and then went straight into helicopters. But were there other flying medical officers going on to fast jet, etc.? Always, the the whole program at that time was being cancelled. So the only way that you could become a medical officer pilot then was to change service. And in fact, I had been um, sort of headhunted for the army to fly helicopters with them, but the RAF at that stage uh, would not let me go because I was still on a short service commission. But that's another story. So the the answer to your question is that um, up until that point, uh, up until pretty much my first year of service, you there was still an active fast jet medical officer pilot program. Right. But unfortunately, doctors were falling out and dropping out of the, of the program because they just couldn't keep up. And the the reason for that is has always been explained as being well, the doctors. By the time you've been through medical school, you're you know getting into your late twenties, and you're past your peak for learning. Now, one has mm. to just bear in mind that a medical officer pilot to 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 carry that grand title had to not only pass the general duties wings course, 
but then become an instructor and then go to operational oh. conversion unit to fly operationally. And unlike the Navy and the Army, the um, emphasis on the doctors getting right to the very top of, the, of their um, flying uh, pyramid, if you like to call it that, uh, was, was much greater than you know, in, the RAF, in the RAF than it was in the Army and Navy. So that was the high, that was the cause of the high dropout rate. So the only way that doctors then could become pilots is to give up medicine and then right. mm. transfer to the general duties branch to become pilots. What was what was the point? What, what were what were they trying to do by putting people like you through that training program? Because I know now, in, I mean, the American Air Force, the idea is to build. Uh, physicians who have that deep understanding and then are greater flight surgeons. But back then, what were they trying to achieve by putting you through this? Pretty much what you said, Daniel. The idea was that if you need, if you are looking after pilots, you have to understand what pilots do for a living. And you can okay. talk about it as much as you like, but you only really understand it when you experience it. So mm -hmm. not just flying in an aircraft, but flying as a pilot in an aircraft is as good as it gets. Indeed. And this is what, you know, this is lessons learned basically in World War II. How can we um, tackle the problems that are encountered by pilots in combat, such as G-induced loss of consciousness, mm. for instance, if we don't really understand what it is, what it feels like, what it does to you. And, and of course, a lot of people died from G-induced loss of consciousness because they were unconscious, lost control of the aircraft and crashed. Mm -hmm. And if that, that happens... Um, and you can't find any other reason for the crash. It must be pilot error, but it's not pilot error. It wasn't pilot error in those days. It was G-induced loss of consciousness. So there's a good example of why it took doctors to get involved yeah. in trying to understand why perfectly serviceable aircraft were flying to the ground. Mm. So understanding everything from the effects on vision from night, using night vision goggles to the effects of vibration uh, and, and cold, experience of cold. I mean, we could go back to World War II and look at high-altitude bombers, mm. um, hypoxia, cold, vibration, noise, all these features that we're so familiar with in aerospace medicine. Mm. And how was your experience on the Diploma of Aviation Medicine at King's College London um, back then? That was very interesting because working at the Institute of Aviation Medicine, I was expected to be a teacher of, of the uh, diploma course. And then I, so I would join the class and talk to them about biodynamics and crash um, investigation and all the things that I was being asked to do in those early days uh, before I moved over to the neurosciences. And um, so I complained to my uh, commanding officer and, and said, um, why is it that I'm teaching these guys when I don't have the diploma? Surely I should study for the diploma. <laughs> uh, Daniel, I know you. Uh, while you're asking this, because you've done the same thing. So uh, they said, you can't do it. So I said, well, why can't I do it? Because you, you've got to do the six months of study, and I, we can't let you off work for six months. So you just can't do it. So I, I wrote to uh, the Royal College of Physicians and said, can I sit this as an external? And they said, Yes, of course you can. So I went back to my boss and said, um, I'm signed up to sit the exam. So I'm just going to take my annual leave two weeks before. 
study for it, and I'll sit the exam. And I know, Daniel, we've had this conversation. That was my advice to you. Don't take six months off, but really work hard for a short period of time. Know your subject. Uh, and with your previous experience, I'm sure you'll do well. And I believe you did. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Wow, that 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 is, I, I never heard that that story in 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 that detail, but it, it really makes sense. So you, you actually took your own time off to study for it, and you had the guts, the the goal to tell them that I'm going to do this. I'm going <laughs> to study your for CEO, it. Told your CEO, stuck it straight to your CEO. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, and then you passed it. And actually, um, I was looking um at the pictures, the photographs in the in the uh, Institute of Aviation Medicine, where you can see all the the classmates of all through the years, all the way to the 60s. And I was looking for your picture, trying to find you, but I couldn't find you. And I thought, where is he? But that makes sense now. Ah. <laughs> we, we... Yeah, I'd, I'd be honest with you, uh, and no hard feelings, but there were people there that did not want me to succeed. But I mean, what I proved was that you can be an external student and you can get the diploma if you work hard enough to do it. Um, the reason that you would, didn't see me is because, no, I didn't do the diploma course. And that's those pictures are for the diploma, diplomates of the course. However, mm. if you'd looked at the advanced aviation medicine course, you'll see me because I was allowed, because I've proven myself, I was allowed to join the, <laughs> the one week advanced aviation medicine course. <laughs> okay. When I'm back, I'll, I'll look for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you've gone from pilot. You come off the fast jet stream. You've gone to helicopters now, which itself is a bit of a sort of maverick thing to do. Uh, you then you then go off, and obviously you become a GP. And having seen the what happened in Ramstein, you decide that actually I need to I need to go do something to improve myself, and you know be able to be as effective as I can in that particular situation. So you go through emergency medicine. Was this the sort of time that you were starting to think about founding your own aeromedical company and that sort of thing, or when when did all of that start? Because I'm trying to piece together the timeline of Terry Martin, and it, there's so it's much <laughs> everywhere. <It's so> <laughs> There were so many things going on at the same time. I mean, first of all, I've just recalled that I didn't really answer Daniel's question earlier on. I think it was Daniel who um, said that um, me talking about intensive care is the next obvious step when I was already in emergency mm -hmm. medicine. Yes, you, yeah, let's go Actually, <clears throat> just quickly, um, because I was so interested in, in G-induced loss, uh, loss of consciousness and the, the very reason of, of and being of conscious consciousness itself that obviously head injuries became um, a favorite subject of mine and I really wanted to know about um, what happens when somebody has a major bleed raised into cranial pressure or a head injury or, or any cause you know epilepsy causing um, disorders of neurological function they, this whole area opened up to me and I thought this is taking me closer and closer and closer to neurointensive care and, uh, and that's why I needed to go into intensive care so I could do neurointensive care eventually. And to do that, I had to be an anaesthetist. Mm. So, but <laughs> coming back to your question, Rohan, my um, love and passion for aeromedical transport, uh, Medivac or Casivac, as it was called in the military, didn't start as a love or a passion. It started when I was um, just out of my... SHO job. Now, does everybody know what an SHO is? Senior House Officer? 
Um, what, what was the equivalent to a senior house officer in his third year? Now I, I, I lose track. So a CT three senior senior house officer yeah. or, or CT, <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, so I've just done um, two jobs: six months in pediatrics and six months in obstetrics, uh, with a bit of neonatal medicine in there. So they were, you know, they're quite thorough jobs, and we, we in those days did have a lot of responsibility, especially in doing the jobs in the Air Force, mm. where there was not so much senior cover in those days. Uh, and I was taken out of um, my, I think it was my second job uh, as a GP, having had recently done my SHO job in pediatrics to move a baby um, by helicopter from one part of Germany, Germany to another part of Germany where our base was. Wow. And I said, hang on a minute. I'm a GP now. I haven't done any pediatrics for a year, and I don't really know that much about medical evacuation. And I remember being told, just get on with it. You're a doctor. <laughs> I've been a doctor for a month, and I've already heard that. And I'm like, um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So times have changed. But um, it was the same when I was in um, Belize. I was posted to Central America. And all of a sudden, as a GP, I was doing far much more than I was expected to do in on the British side you know, when I was based in the UK, mm. including jumping on a helicopter and going out to some fairly major trauma, including uh, firearms and road traffic accidents, mm. jungle incidents and so on. So by then I was beginning to think, wonder why I'm not getting any training for this. I have to make it up as I go along. Mm. And why is it the nurses get trained? So that's how it started. And that was all doubling along in parallel to all the other things we've been talking about. Wow. And uh, and really, I, I didn't do a massive amount of flying, medivac flying, until the first Gulf War. Right. 1990 to 91. So, hey, Terry, I want to interrupt you there quickly, um, because there's a, a lot of real value in what, I'm really hearing and and actually you know I guess I'm coming from a alternative place here because I've looked at your career and I really thought about it and actually a paradigm which I'm building a fundamental which I've, I've built is that it's not that you wanted to be something or be someone it's that you wanted to be able to do mm. something and have those skills to do something and as a byproduct you became x or you became y which is what the external would see but it's you having that curiosity and the desire to want to do something and then acting on it is that correct i never heard that type of description of me before but there is an old english word um which was used uh, in the description of me by a rather um senior officer when i questioned uh, whether i could go back into pilot training and he says, he said something in a letter to me, and the words were something like, the problem is with her, Martin. And what he meant by that is, where are you going? What do you want to do? <laughs> it's not with her as in decay. At least I don't think that's what he meant. He was, he was actually saying, well, what, you know, where are you going? You, one minute you want to do this, the next minute you're doing that. And then I think at that stage, I just uh, finished a big study on snake bite injury in Belize. <laughs> <laughs> And, and 
<laughs> and, uh, and and published and collected samples of snakes and brought them back to the Natural History Museum and the RAF Tropical Medicine Museum, which we used to have. It sounds like a joke, but it's not. It's true. It's true. It is true, every word. Um, so, you know, it, it, the, the comment was, you know, what do you want to do? you want to do tropical medicine? Do you want to do aviation medicine? Do you want to be a pilot? So make your mind up. And that, that wasn't particularly taken well by my senior officers. They wanted uh, predictability. Mm-hmm. They wanted to know which medical officers are going to be serving in what posts in a year's time, in five years' time, and in 10 years' time. But what's the plot going to look like? Do we have enough doctors? Do we have enough people in the specialties in the tr- various trainings? So, um, yes, and, and so all the things I've done have been in parallel to other things at the same time. And... Um, Daniel, I like your description better. Thank you very much. <laughs> when you were doing those things, were you incredibly busy or were you just enjoying the process? What was it? Oh, it was both. It was definitely both. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I have to warn anybody wanting to follow me in this line of uh, destruction because eventually... It's, <laughs> eventually... <laughs> That's brilliant. Yes, eventually uh, it, there's a danger of burning out. Um, I, I've burnt out now. I'm in, I'm in my 60s now, and, and I'm, a, I'm all for a, uh, an easy life, but I find I'm working just as hard. Um, semi-resignment doesn't really mean anything, and I'm still writing papers, uh, teaching, advising, doing stuff, and I think it's great. It can affect your personal life mm. and family life, so you know you have to be warned about that. But if you keep your brain active, life is so much more mm. enjoyable. And I've always said to my students and, and trainees that the day goes by when you haven't learned something and you've wasted a day. Mm. And, and, and actually, uh, you just reminded me of something that uh, recently I've been looking at a lot of papers and doing some research um, just on, on various things to do with anesthetics and retrieval. And I always come across your name in many, many different things. I'm like, oh, here we go again. Here we go. <laughs> Terry Martin, Terry Martin, Terry Martin all the time. It's stuff that I never knew existed. I never knew your name was there. And it's, it's just amazing. I thought, yep, yeah, okay. That's I nice. can just imagine being a student of Terry because I've not had the pleasure, but then being like, oh yeah, go and read, go and read this particular paper, or this particular book. You open it and you realize that, ah, this is the reason why it's because he's wrote the blooming thing. <laughs> I'm going to imagine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm, um, it's a shame. You, if you see my name everywhere, perhaps I should have been called something a bit sexier, like Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, and it's very kind of you to say so. I mean, it's just for me, it's just been um, passion. I'm passionate about so many things that interest me. And that's why this conversation, I'm afraid, is taking off on so many different divergent routes. Mm. Um, the, when something interests you you must follow it and if you don't follow it it's a loss and so it's another sort of um, um, little saying is just grasp all those opportunities where you can and um, uh, the other thing to say is that um, there is an element of being jack of all trades and master of none of mm. course. I try not not to be a master of none so hence um, you end up with multiple diplomatosis <laughs> having 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 six fellowships looks pretentious, <laughs> but it actually is a good way of proving that actually you've done something with your time. And I, I don't mean that in a trite manner. Um, <laughs> in later in life, when you really do want to change jobs, 
you need to be able to prove to people that you've got staying power and you can do a really good job, but you might not be there forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I think that's that's the the problem, Daniel, that you may find when uh, when you're looking for jobs, not necessarily now when you're younger, uh, but but later in life. And and I think that's because um, whatever people say about ageism, it's another ism. But as we get older, people are less likely to employ you, however good your CV is. So mm. you, you have to make sure the right things are there. And um, the other thing I feel sorry about for young doctors like the, the two of you is that in my day to be moving around, getting a broad medical education was thought to be the bee's knees. That's what everybody should do. Mm. Don't settle just yet. Go and do six months in this. Come back after you've done a year of that. And now everybody seems to be forced to yep. make oh, um, decisions so, right at the beginning. Wow, yeah. It's like if you if you haven't been born with a stethoscope as soon as you came out of your mother's womb, then there's something wrong with you, basically, right? That's sort of mm. the way it is. No, I, I think another thing I just wanted to note there is just that, I don't know if you'll agree with me when you say this, but I definitely feel like life is actually a lot longer than you think it is, I think. You kind of led to believe that, you must do this by this particular point, otherwise you're useless, etc. But actually, I think I've kind of, in my head, I've kind of allowed myself to maybe hold back a little bit and actually think about what it is it that I enjoy, what is it that I actually truly love and I'm passionate about and can put the energy into. Um, I don't know what you think about that comment, because initially I thought you might agree, but now it's interesting that maybe you won't. It'll be interesting to hear about well, that, Terry. Well, it's funny you should say that because I was going to say I agree with it and I disagree with it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the part you said about life goes on forever, looking from life from where I'm standing, it doesn't. And it starts to get a bit frightening that you've still got a huge bucket list of things you want to do, books you want to read, mm. places you want to go. Mm. And you're running out of time. I suppose nobody knows when their time's coming, but we, as we get older, we uh, we tend to go to more funerals than we do weddings. And <laughs> okay. So, so um, you know, you have to take that view on life. But your other comment, I do agree with, and that is, um, life is important. There is more to it than just work. If your work gives you a lot of pleasure, mm. then you you really. In a, it's a bit of a difficult situation, isn't it? Because you're actually getting a big buzz out going to work. So why not go to work more? Why not work from home? Why not work at weekends? And holidays? What are holidays? <laughs> I don't. I have no concept of what a holiday is. Lie on a beach? Where's a beach? What's a beach? <laughs> but seriously, um, yes, you really should take that time out. And I too have had these thoughts since the lockdown, and um, I, I, I can see. Both sides of your argument. One I agree mm. with. Don't think that there's plenty of life left. Mm. Um, you don't know what tomorrow brings. Yeah. I, I think I think I more meant that you don't have to. You shouldn't feel terrible if you don't know exactly what it is that you want to do at this particular moment in time. Have that freedom in your head to be able to think about what it is that you actually enjoy. Is what I was kind of meaning a little bit. Yeah. Okay. It was that 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 I will. I certainly agree with Rohan. Um, you're just going to make sure the people that are going to employ you agree with that as well. Yeah, fair enough. Obviously, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, um, they want you to get on with the job that they want you to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever, and if that's going into emergency medicine, that's where you'll be for the next 30, 40 years. Then you look at it and you think, do I really want to do this for the next 30, 40 years? And, um, of course, 
moving around in specialties now become is becoming more difficult. Mm. Um, so maybe to start your whole career with a portfolio uh, career plan is a good thing, Daniel. Yeah, yeah, I totally feel that. <laughs> and you know the the fact uh, that you're planning to become an anaesthetist as well, I think, is the icing on the cake because. That is something that uh, you can always go back to, mm. uh, and, or you can continue very much part time if you want to have your portfolio career and become an aviation medicine or space medicine person expert, or a you know Kazivac medivac type of person. Definitely, these things are doable because you've got the overarching uh, qualification, which I believe personally um, is the one that's most important and, and most useful. Or aerospace medicine and repatriation medivac or whatever you want to call it. So Terry and Rohan, I really love this conversation for the, for the fact that we've managed to touch on so many different things. Uh, there's there's two very important parts uh, which I want to touch on: uh, assistance medicine, uh, medical assistance, which of course Terry, you've had a big part to play in that over the few years, um, last decades, and of course space medicine. But first of all, assistance medicine. Please talk talk about that. Yes, uh, thanks, Daniel. Um, I must say that my first encounter with assistance medicine was um, at an inconvenient time. I was headhunted to uh, leave the Air Force and uh, go to a big company uh, based in London, or just on the outskirts of London. And um, the, the plan was that I would be their medical director or chief medical officer, they called it at the time. And um, the the job involved uh, organising for insurance companies the repatriation of patients overseas, businessmen working overseas who became you know all that sort of thing. And uh, it sounded um, sounded pretty cool. I could I could get on with and do that job because I've been doing it in the air force. Little did I know how different the um, military way is to the civilian way. Mm. But um, medical assistance, of course, is the part of that which is giving advice talking to patients, talking to their family, talking to doctors overseas, doctors in the UK, so referring and receiving teams, um, creating a transport team if necessary to go and fetch the patient back and bring them back as a patient as opposed to a recovering convalescent person on a commercial airliner. Mm. Uh, so medical assistance has many facets to it. And in reality, it uh, didn't take me very long to realise that I didn't know or understand the industry at all well. Travel insurance is the, if you like, the biggest fund funder or commissioner of services. But there's also a private sector where people have not got insurance. There are company-based systems, big companies like BBC, CNN, uh, Reuters. Um, you know, they've got people working all over the world in hazardous areas. They pay for their own medical assistance and medical advice and repatriation. Then there's governments and the military, and you know there's there's all sorts of organisations, um, including the ones that you probably don't think about, such as big oil companies with remote oil yep. rigs um, and platforms in the middle of the mm. deserts and, and so on. So there's there's lots of aspects where remote medical assistance and advice is important, but also the ability to organise and to direct from a distance. So um, taking control of a patient's treatment when they're in a remote spot in the middle of the Indonesian 
uh, rainforest, for instance, um, and having things happen when you want them to happen. I need to get that patient in the Indonesian rainforest to Jakarta. How do I get them from the middle of the rainforest to the city of Jakarta and to what hospital? Mm. Who knows the hospitals in Jakarta? Who knows what, what hospitals have what specialties, what the quality of care is like? Um, should we go there or should we move the patient to Singapore where we know a bit more about the mm. facilities? Um, and everything that encompasses that, everything from trying to talk to the patient and reassure them to um, calling the next of kin back home or in their hotel, or arranging for a family to be moved to the patient because the patient can't be moved to them. Every connotation that you can think of, finding medicines, getting medical um, treatments moved out to the area where the person is. Um, there are so many facets, and I think so much more than I can say in just a few minutes, Daniel. But that's the interesting thing about medical assistance. The fun, the fun bit is when it all, all comes together and you have a successful transfer or repatriation or treatment of a patient just by moving them locally to a hospital in another part of the world. So this, the, these cases don't necessarily have to come all the way back to their home. I want to challenge you, Terry, though. Can I challenge you on that? Yeah. yeah. I've had a lot of uh, comments um, and discussions essentially saying that actually, do you need a highly skilled medical professional to organize uh, such a movement? And I have my opinion on that. But can you give us context uh, about why you do need a highly skilled medical professional to do that and what, what actually is involved a bit more specific context how you would use your knowledge specifically perhaps in anesthetics or ITU to organize that type of movement I can give you a good example of um, something that tragically went wrong and obviously you'll appreciate I can't give too much detail absolutely but I can I can outline a case of a gentleman who uh, was in his late 50s and he was enjoying a holiday in um, in Nepal, um, walking the foothills or, um, of the mountains. And he became uh, a little unwell with high altitude uh, cerebral edema uh, and possibly some pulmonary edema as well. And was um, so breathless he couldn't carry on, but so he was allowed to go on uh, horseback as long as he paid for it so he decided that that's the only way he would make the trek and then he fell off the horse and cracked a, a couple of ribs and so then you can imagine what problems were then happening in his lungs which were already full of edema and he was eventually um, persuaded to to hire a helicopter to be flown off uh, the mountains and he um, did dip into his pocket and he did that and he said but I would like to fly uh, to the top of Everest because I'll never reach it now Wow! and so he paid paid for that Wow! and, and of course the helicopter is an unpressurized mm. aircraft uh, Everest is pretty high so it's the higher you go the lower the air pressure the lower the PAO2 until you reach the point where um, severe cerebral hypoxia occurs so he eventually arrived at a hospital in Kathmandu and um, was very, very sick with both cerebral and pulmonary edema, but managed to, to recover. 
and Rent did reasonably well. Um, his fractured ribs were painful. He left hospital. He walked back in a couple of days later, complaining that he was still a bit breathless. They realised that um, he was getting worse. He ended up being intubated and uh, put on a, uh, an intensive care unit of sorts where he languished for, I think it was about six weeks. And uh, I was eventually involved in this case because a family decided to approach me privately and said that their medical insurance company had decided that he wasn't sick enough to uh, require being remedied or repatriated home. And they were worried because he seems to be getting worse and worse and worse and worse and he's still sedated and when they stop the station he doesn't, doesn't wake up. So I said, um, with your permission, I'll take over the case, uh, which was agreed. And I got a medical report and I looked at it and I said, this guy's dying. He's going to die. And without going into too much detail, it was one of those um, reports where you can see um, problems in everything from the blood gases through the um, endocrine system, the immune system, the hematology was wrong. But most of all, was he had severe ARDS, and he was had been like it for so long. When I look back over the records, that he he was probably in the fibrotic stage, where even ECMO would no longer help him. So the first thing I did was talk to the family very bluntly and, and explain to them that um, that you probably already know this, but he, he's got very little chance of surviving. And they were floored. They said nobody's ever said that to us. So as I investigated more, it was because nobody recognised and really understood the results of his tests. Wow! And so the people, the people at the um, at the insurance office, none of them were mm. medical. Uh, and so coming back to your question about whether you need a, med- a medical person, a senior medical person with the right training, is absolutely because if that had been spotted four weeks earlier or three weeks earlier then that gentleman would have survived. As it was, he did die. He died very quickly. Um, There's more to the story, and we did our best to to try and move this gentleman to an ECMO centre, but by the time that he was moved, there was um, no chance at all. His lungs were just fibrotic, completely fibrotic. So had it been for the want of an anaesthetic or intensive care trained doctor and giving sensible advice, that particular patient might be alive today. A previously fit, fairly healthy gentleman in his late 50s who probably had another 10, 20, 30 years to live. Wow. Yeah, thank you very much for answering that question. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's a, definitely a very, very strong case for um, medical expertise at the end of uh, insurance um, and, and medical movements, um, organising logistics. Wow, yeah, yeah, thank you for that. Actually, Daniel, if I can just say that um, most of my teaching now is based around uh, risk assessing every patient, but especially the complex patients. And risk assessing means looking at patients in a very different way, looking at them from a pathophysiological point of view, from what they're actually got wrong with them, from their initial injury or illness, and then following it up with the um, risks that are presented by the environment that they're in, whether it's up a mountain or in the cold or in the heat, in the jungle or the desert, plus not just environmental, but also the flight environment or altitude-related 
risks, and then the, finally the biodynamic risks. These are the risks that come on moving a patient, even if they were moved by road. And if you've got the knowledge, you can build a risk mm. analysis program, which leads you to the natural um, final part of this whole process, and that's writing the transfer or mission, if you like, plan of how you're going to um, maintain absolute safety of the patient to the best of your ability, and how you're going to mitigate or ameliorate risks, avoid them altogether, or manage them should they actually occur. And I think if you manage every patient in the same way, you don't need to write out reams and reams of risk analysis paperwork because it starts to be in your head. So you look at every patient in exactly the same way. They're not sitting in a bed in a hospital on the NHS in London. They're in a facility which you've never probably been to before yourself. Don't know what's there. You don't know what they've got. You don't know what the skill sets are. You don't know if the right treatment has started and you don't even know if the information you're getting from overseas yep. is true mm. or is correct. Mm. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> very, very strong statement. <laughs> wow. Wow, wow, wow. It's almost like what you were kind of saying, describing there, boys, is that it's kind of like that telemedicine aspect of things. You have to make inferences without a patient in front of you. And I do remember that on my space medicine course that I was lucky enough to attend with UTMB, that a lot of the flight surgeons on there were saying how, um, you know, everything that they do is effectively telemedicine because when they're on the space station, they have to literally like go by what what the astronauts who are, of course, are very, very well trained are telling them about what's going on and how that adds another layer of complexity between actually managing your patient, which I think was just a, just really interesting that you guys had that similar sort of experience in what you described with an aeromed as well, I just thought. Yeah, so it, it's um, worth pointing out that um, a very similar system has actually been created in Phoenix, Arizona. Yes, so yeah. The MedLink system. And yes, they've uh, any any airline or any any private individual, in fact, uh, and a lot of um, yachts, private yachts and boats, cruises and so on, sign up to a service which is um, connected to Phoenix, Arizona, by all sorts of means, so satellite connections, telephone, emails, whatever, uh, and uh, there are various remote diagnostic technology packages you can buy so that you can send information direct to Phoenix and get responses from uh, a so-called attending or a consultant in in any specialty at all whatsoever. If it's a specialty, they'll have a consultant there. They can come to the telephone and talk about the patient. And obviously, they're usually talking to people who are not medically trained. Mm. So it is. Yeah. And when, when there is someone medically trained, that's when it's very effective because the medical discussions happen and particularly when talking about diverting or continue going, that critical decision has a lot of authority behind it because that decision is being made and obviously it has a lot of consequences. That's true. Um, I should point out you're talking about diverting or going on an airline, it's not on the space shuttle, the space station rather. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, you're absolutely right there, Daniel. The, if you've got uh, a doctor who's face-to-face -face with the patient and has got the remote diagnostic technology plus a doctor in the specialty, 
um, whatever country in the world it is, but you've got probably the best management that you can have for that patient in that scenario. Indeed. At this point in this conversation, I want to focus more on um, aeromedical retrieval. Um, I'm currently uh, looking at a couple of books in front of me. One is the Oxford Specialist Handbook of Retrieval Medicine, um, co-authored consulting editor Terry Martin. And (laughs) (laughs) there's there's his name again. Um, But I want to talk about the key fundamentals um, of aeromedical retrieval. Um, in, in your words, Terry, and, and just a little bit of insight into it for, for, for those who don't know much about it uh, listening. Well, for me, uh, the, the, the key things are um, planning, preparation, attention to detail, and an ability to, to um, stay calm when all about you might be losing their heads, as they say. Uh, these are features which are very often found in anesthetists and intensivists. And emergency physicians, I guess, because they are used to the high pressure environment. So in terms of points to take away, if you don't have the fundamental environmental and aviation linked knowledge, if you don't have the fundamental clinical prowess, knowledge, skills and experience, then how can you give your best to a patient who's in a remote environment with, you know, being at 35,000 feet above the city of London or New York or Paris or Rome is just as remote as being uh, over the jungle mm. of Indonesia. Basically, what, what you've got available to you as a patient is what's on that aircraft and who's on that aircraft. <laughs> so remoteness is not necessarily just geographical. It's scenario-based. So if you haven't got the skills, or haven't got the knowledge, if you don't know how to work your way out of a mystery and enigma problem, and you can't um, think about things that you don't know about them because you haven't studied them, then you're not doing justice to the job you're supposed to be doing. So I'm clearly very, very biased on this. My big conflict of interest is I believe everybody should be trained before they go get on an aeroplane and escort a patient. However, low level of care that patient is, they can become a level three patient before you know it. Um, So these things happen. It's better to be pre-borned, forewarned, being forearmed, and hearing horror stories from people that have done it all before. Learn from the mistakes of others, learn from the triumphs of others as well. And the whole of my clinical assessment process is based on those simple questions. How serious and how likely? Mm. And the next question is, if it does occur, what am I going to do about it? Probably one question I've left out in the middle is, how can I prevent that happening? Mm. And it's understanding also the logistics of the environment as well. It's not just the, um, the atmospherics of the atmosphere, sorry, the physics of the atmosphere. It's not just the altitude physiology, what happens as you climb up through the atmosphere. It's also about what's it like flying in a little tin can at 42, 44,000 feet and you get a rapid decompression. What's it like if you're in turbulence and your patient is terrified 
and the wife is being airsick whilst the husband is um, screaming for pain relief. Mm. Um, you know, it's all these things about operating in small areas, confined spaces, sometimes cold, sometimes well, always noisy. Um, humidity is low. Uh, there's vibration. There's people with fear of flying, people with fear of being sick. Uh, there's tubes that dislodge, come loose. There's wires that come off, the ECGs that tell you that patients in ventricular fibrillation, even though they're talking to you. Mm. Um, there are so many of these little gems, little stories that need to be told. And um, learning from everyone else's experience is a very, very good way. If you tell if you give these lessons in the form of stories and get people to stop and pause with you and say, and you ask them, what would you do next? And then as they tell you what they would do, you can direct them, you can correct them, you can <laughs> advise them, or you can revise with them so that they remember things that they've forgotten about. Amazing. Amazing. That's really, really cool. Um, what I want to know then, so Terry, for a mere mortal like myself, how is it that you actually prepare then when you're, when you've got a transfer, which is coming to you? Like, what's the process that you go through? So, okay, I've got an ill patient who's in Kathmandu, for example. Now what, 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 what happens exactly from your end? Rohan, information is key. You can't do much if you don't know much. And, and this is this is a, one of the problems. Um, going back to Daniel's question earlier on about um, well, why should you should you have a doctor doing this job? It's because the doctors know what questions to ask. And with all the best will in the world, uh, if you've got if you're training somebody just to be a medical operations call handler, they'll never have that experience and never really quite understand. And I've tried creating um, algorithms. Ask this question, and if this answer comes, you go down that route. This answer comes, you go down the other route. And you can do so much like that. But eventually there's a column or an arrow somewhere pointing to a box that says, discuss with medical director. Mm. Uh, and, and this is really, really important. So information is key. Well, first thing I want to know is who's referred the patient to us? Is it the patient themselves? Is it their next of kin? Is their traveling companion? Is it the insurance company? Is it a doctor in an overseas hospital? Find that out. Then speak to that person if you can, even if it's the patient themselves. Get them on the phone. I'm a great believer in doing things directly as quickly as possible. Find out what's happening. Get all the information. Get a really good history. Follow a pattern. So you do the same for every patient. And so I've written patterns for different types of patients. So every patient, there's a generic one for every single patient. Then there'll be a pattern um, questionnaire for, for instance, head injuries, stroke patients, subarachnoids, hypertensives, uh, asthmatics, COPDs, um, elderly people who are just frail. Uh, so there's a, a whole array of pre-programmed questionnaires mm. on which you can add your own specific questions just for that patient. And treat everyone as different. Don't make assumptions. Check everything. And then... You need to have uh, the investigations that have been done, the treatments that have been started, and what the patient's wishes are or the insurance company's wishes. <laughs> so look at your parameters. Then you need to be talking to overseas teams, 
You need to get a bed arranged for the patient if it's a bed-to-bed transfer in the UK. Then you have to start looking at logistics. Are we going to bring this patient back to the UK or are we going to move them to a better centre nearby to get them stabilised? Are we going to leave them there, get them better so they can get on their normal flight home and maybe retrieve a little bit of their holiday if they're not so bad? Um, Do we need to fly people out to them? So we're looking at the social side, the financial side, the logistics side. It's not just medical. Mm. And then you have to have a team meeting at least once a day on every case, if not twice or three times a day on the very, very critical ones where you're urgently trying to move somebody. You might want to know in an hour's time whether X has happened or Y has happened Mm. and, uh, and keeping everybody up to date. So communication is key as well. Information is key. Communication is key. And eventually, with enough practice, you'll be risk assessing as you go along. You'll be changing your clinical plan and also your logistic plan. And also then picking up the phone to make inquiries about perhaps an air ambulance transfer or a ground transfer or a ship transfer or leaving the patient where they are or moving them to another clinic. So networking and developing a provider system around the world so that you have trusted partners and you know that if you ask them to do something, they'll do the best they can. Mm. Sure. So there's, there's a lot to Definitely. it. And, and it just made me think about um, how now the, the world of repatriation and evacuation is opening up to more and more professionals, including a lot of uh, paramedics in Europe. Um, usually it's paramedics in the USA, who, and they're quite different. Um, to, to paramedics in, in the UK. Um, of course, there's lots of uh, nurse repats and, and evacuations. Um, what do you? What would you say about the different mix of skills and appropriateness for uh, moving patients? And, and actually, now that this is opening up to, to even more professionals, such as uh, mental health nurses, and of course, um, uh, chest uh, physiotherapists um, who, who, are, who are doing some movements. Well, do you have anything to say about, about the, the, that opening up? Well, in general, I think that uh, heterogeneous teams, so you've got a mix of skills that are really beneficial to the patient. But of course, you mustn't lose sight of the fact that um, it's only really the super specialists who know their areas very, very well mm. that can make the decision on who's best to have in the team. So, for instance, it's very easy for me to say as an intensivist that all intensive care patients that are level three and mostly the level twos because they might run the risk of becoming level three have to have a senior anaesthetist with intensive care experience on the flight with an intensive care nurse or a critical care practitioner. That's easy. But what about if this is a, um, an obstetric case? And yes, the reason the patient's been moved is because of a, um, say, a, I don't know, a uh, postpartum bleed or maybe an antipartum bleed or whatever, or a, a pregnancy induced hypertension. What we're really moving them for is because they might become critical. So, why do we need an obstetrician on the flight? What's the obstetrician going to do in an airplane? Or if it's the dangerously psychotic patient who is a danger to himself, a danger to everyone around him and so on. 
why do you want to put the mental health social worker on board? Do we need an anaesthetist to potentially um, sedate the patient so heavily that they might need intubation? Or do we need the psychiatrist who is armed with a certain amount of sedation but you know, is unable to manage the airway if the patient can mm. be sedated? Mm. So it's very, very difficult for people who have not got this big umbrella of experience and knowledge to make these decisions on who is the best crew. And that's where things often go wrong. We hear about it all the time. A nurse was dispatched by the office to go out to pick up a patient, arrives in resort somewhere in uh, Portugal or Spain or wherever, sees the patient. patient is not very well, really, looks into it a bit more detail, phones back to the office and, and then is told, oh, no, 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 no. Can't take that patient. Leave the patient there. You come home. We'll send a team out tomorrow on an air ambulance. That happens so frequently. What worries me is the ones that don't ring back to the office with their concerns, but they think, oh, I'll manage. Mm. That doesn't happen quite so often, but we have heard of disasters where the patients have deteriorated because the they, um, non-doctor member of the crew, whether it's a nurse or a paramedic, whatever, have not really known that what they didn't know. So I'm talking Donald Rumsfeld speak here. It's the unknown unknowns. If you don't know what you don't know, that's a dangerous combination. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for that answer. Um, just rounding up that, there's a few things that we, we want to touch before we bring this conversation to a close. I'm sure um, Rohan might have some comments also. Um, space. Let's talk about space. You've been involved in a project called Juno Project. Yes. And we want to hear yes. about it. The um, Project Juno was a um, an Anglo-Soviet space program uh, based uh, around the mission to take a British astronaut up to the Mir space station or to be more correct, a cosmonaut it was uh, on the Soyuz uh, rocket. Um, so uh, the three services obviously wanted to put um, applicants in, and I was one of the, I think there were two from the RAF, uh, several more from the Army and from the Navy. And um, the project started to hit financial problems, and eventually the whole thing could only go ahead if the mission was paid for by the UK government or a benefactor. So the UK government said, okay, uh, this will come out of the army budget or the navy budget or the air force budget, or if it comes from the private sector, then it'll come from industry or a benefit. The RAF said, oh, we're not going to pay. So that was me out of the project, uh, having not got even as far as starting the training. So um, like many, many thousands of other people probably, um, I fell by the wayside. But the interesting thing was I was working at the RAF Institute of Medicine which um, held the contract to do the selection, medical selection or physiological selection tests of the lucky shortlist of people and then to <laughs> offer some training. So that's how I got involved, but quite peripherally really. But I did actually end up with my Project Juno badges and uh, sweatshirts and T-shirts and so on. Things <laughs> part of the ground. Got the T-shirt. Love a bit of stash. <laughs> Love a bit of stash. <laughs> So, so I proudly wear my Project Juno 
uh, patch on my flying suit. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of being a very, very small part of that fantastic time of adventure for the what was going to be the British, first British astronaut pro, in the programme. And, of course, Helen Sharman, who worked for the Mars Bar Confectionery Company, was the lucky contender who actually flew up to the nearest um, space station uh, for a few days and returned safely to Earth. One thing that I wanted to uh, mention and get across in this podcast was educational opportunities within aviation, aerospace, medicine, retrieval and evacuation. Um, I get a lot of messages on social media about, you know, how does one get aviation medicine experience? How does one apply for a job or where does one start? Um, and Terry, what advice would you give to uh, medical students or junior doctors or even uh, middle grade doctors who, who want experience uh, and want to jump into the industry? Where should they go? What should they do? Well, Daniel, that's a that's a very good one because it's it's quite um, topical as well. I, I was talking to a young nurse actually in uh, South Korea who has been a student of mine on one of my Bangkok courses. And she works for an assistant company and wants to uh, do more. And uh, over several discussions with, with me, and I've offered to be a kind of uh, mentor in, the, in respect of informing her of what's available and, um, and what she could do. The first job is to get her into medical school because she doesn't want to be a flight nurse. She wants to be a flight doctor. Mm. And we've, I think we've cracked that one now. I think she's got her place. Really? And, uh, and um, yeah, and so my advice to her is she's got some fantastic experience behind her working for an assistance company, but she's got a long way still to go if she's going to do it as a, as a doctor. And uh, she needs to focus and concentrate on now the academic side because let's let's not be in any doubt here. The academic side has to be done one way or another. Mm. Whatever your specialty, you have to get to the top of it, really, to be able to say that you can um, do a good job in something as broad as aviation medicine or aerospace medicine or aeromedical retrieval. Mm. And, um, yes, you can do a lot on the way to the top, but if you want that top job as medical director, chief medical officer, medical advisor, whatever, then you do need to have the broad range of knowledge from various areas. Um, and if I can just digress a little bit, Daniel, you were talking earlier on to me um, about um, uh, did I did I plan to do what I did or did I just have challenges coming up and I thought, oh, I'll take that challenge and I'll take that challenge. Well, I have to say there was a turning point and that was probably when I uh, was at Farnborough. So I'd gone through the Ramstein disaster, I become um, a part-time emergency physician. I was doing all sorts of interesting aviation and aerospace medicine things at Farnborough, and then I decided that what I would need to have to be the, a good all-rounder in terms of medical evacuation, repatriation, medical assistance, I'd need to understand general practice because a lot of the issues of our patients are let's say not intensive care, less less so, mm. to have a, a broad uh, understanding of hospital medicine. And I'd done uh, 18 months in three SHO jobs as well as my house jobs. Uh, also to have emergency medicine, very, very, very helpful indeed to have an emergency medicine background. 
Then, of course, you want to push it that little bit further, intensive care, and that means anesthesiology because you need to have airway skills. And then I thought, oh, and the other bit, of course, is the bit I'm already doing. At that time, I was doing aerospace medicine. So I was understanding the physics of the atmosphere, altitude physiology, the biodynamics of patient movement, and all the sensory things that happens during flight and affects the body in enormous number of different ways. Understanding homeostasis, understanding circadian rhythms, understanding how every part of the body interacts with every other part of the body. So that's why knowledge is key. Education is therefore really, really important to me. I'm passionate about it. I developed the CCAT, which stands for Clinical Considerations in Neuromedical Transport. That was the title of the very first course. I designed that initially for the Royal Air Force. The Royal Air Force said we don't need it. Doctors don't need special training. And on the, the very first course I, I put together, I mean, official course, it was open to general public, was done at the Aeronautical University mm. uh, at um, Cranfield, oh, thank you, mm. at Cranfield. And what really intrigued me, interested me, is uh, one of the first students on that first course was an RF medical officer. <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> What was yeah, his explanation? How did he explain showing up? Uh, he said the RF has sent me to find out what it's all about. <laughs> Great. So if someone asked you, what courses should I go on? What should I do? What specialty should I do? A CCAT is definitely a course they should go on. And I get a lot of questions about how much do I need to spend? What do I need to do? Is it GP? Is it emergency medicine? Is it anesthetics? How long do I need to be in? Like, Can I have a, a short, succinct answer for them? Be, because there's a lot of people listening now that want to know what they need to do. And I, I can definitely recommend going the CCAT course. But what would you say to one, two, three things that they could just do straight away? Okay. Well, first of all, you're asking the wrong person about CCAT because I am so uh, conflicted with interest, aren't I? Because I'm, I'm passionate about education. That's why I set up the course. It is um, not for profit as such. Any profits may go back into running the shorter courses that um, are unfunded otherwise. But um, without want wanting to make this turn this into an advert, I would say the first thing to do is to read around the subject. The second is to try to get some work with a repatriation company or an air ambulance company or um, uh, a travel insurance company, medical assistance and so on. These, these are ways of getting yourself uh, immersed into the subject area. And you don't have to be an intensivist, an anesthetist or an emergency consultant to be able to do this job. But the jobs open to us in those specialties are the most interesting jobs, the most challenging jobs, the most... Um, fantastic missions to, to get when they all go right and they go right because we work so damn hard to make them go right mm. and we pull out all the stops uh, and so um, yes the, the take home message is investigate, research, see if you like what you see, if you want to do what I do and uh, Daniel what you're going to be doing it does mean anaesthesia, intensive care and or emergency medicine in some parts of the world Excellent. But there are places for everybody in this tree. So Excellent. general practitioners, uh, internal physicians, nurses, of course, paramedics, and so on. Excellent, excellent. So then, last question. Wait, 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 wait. Hold up. So how, so how does one go about doing that, uh, Terry? You said to go and get job, go get experience. 
is that is it as easy as just being able to send off an email to somebody what is it social media actually go and work there how does it well yes it goes back to information is key isn't it and we are so lucky you guys in your generation have known nothing but google and uh, <laughs> and you and mr google can tell you pretty much everything so um i do say to people look um, google air ambulance or repatriation or travel medicine or whatever and find out what companies are out there if they're if they're asking me about a specific area of the world which i'm familiar with or i have previous students from I'll, I'll give them the contacts and they can get hold of people but if you're starting this you know with nothing but um, a laptop in front of you just do a search and contact companies the other thing is that um, look out for adverts and the obviously now everything's on, online but um, if you find the port the right portal um, like indeed is a good one look out for jobs uh, that uh, mention flying and medicine all in the same advert they're out there of course since the COVID-19 pandemic travel is much 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 reduced and therefore people getting sick overseas and wanting to come back the numbers are way down and so the medical assistance and repatriation companies are doing uh, much less work than they would have been doing this time last year probably 80% less if not more but as we've seen from uh, 9-11, what, um, you know, once you get to the other side of the crisis, things pick up. Yeah. Very yeah. Yeah. Travel. People want to travel. They want to go on holiday. They want to go home or see friends overseas. It will pick up, guys. The jobs will come back. That's it. And they'll That's be it. waiting for you. Now, in, con- in conclusion to, to that segment about education, for me, it's, it's not a conflict of interest to talk about uh, different opportunities and different courses. But I've been on the CCAT course twice, uh, once before and after the Diploma of Aviation Medicine. Um, and since then, my uh, career within uh, aeromedical travel and uh, working has, has, has been has been amazing. Uh, that's, that's my uh, personal uh, testament. The last question that I want to uh, get off my chest um, to Terry is, tell us about your favorite aeromedical mission and what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I think probably it would have to be the very first time I transported a patient intubated. Just the, the sheer complexity of putting the plan together the first time, looking at the risks at the first, for the first time, uh, sharing the mission uh, plan with uh, a small select team, people that I had around me, um, the joy of having the, the um, uh, the, the the teamwork, if you like it, mm. it was a very flat hierarchy. Everybody knew that I was the intensivist, but I was at the time, you know, I wasn't that experienced. But nevertheless, I was the one who was leading and directing the team. The team had the ability to 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 chip in with ideas and um, correct me if they thought I was wrong and so on. That whole first exciting experience, and then. Uh, anticipating things that could go wrong and they did but they didn't phase us because we knew exactly what we were going to do if such a thing would happen mm. because it was planned for and then eventually the really exciting part is when you safely hand over the patient and you produce the documents from the transfer and you can say this is where we had a desaturation which was we found was due to um, a blocked ET tube so we took out the ET tube and replaced it with another one in solved the problem 
and then that this this little blip here is where the arterial line stopped working but we found that was because the patient's arm was outside of the blankets against the extremely cold wall of the aircraft mm, okay. which they always are in the small aircraft so we, we learned a lesson there cold arm arterial spasm mm. the arterial line stops working um, wow. So that sort of thing. So it was just um, the sheer fun and joy of problem solving. No, no serious deteriorations. No harm came to the patient, and safe delivery of that patient afterwards. And being able to walk out, walk out of that hospital smiling, looking forward to a nice drink, a nice meal, and a, a big, you know, warm bed for the night. Thank you, thank you, thank you. On that note, <laughs> Terry, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure to re-engage with you and to engage with you on such a deep level. We've talked about so much today in this last hour and a bit. No, I've, I've really, really in, enjoyed this conversation. Thank you once again. Thank you so much, Terry, for giving us your time today. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to hear everything that you've talked about and the extensiveness of your career. And I think that's a, hopefully given everyone a really nice overview of exactly what is there in the world of aviation medicine, the broad spectrum of possibilities, but also the opportunities that exist for going really taking that deep dive. So thank you so much for your time. And we really hope to have you on very soon. Thank you once again, Terry. You're very welcome, both of you, and uh, good luck to all the listeners. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for downloading and listening to our podcast. We hope that you gained a lot from it. And if you'd like to hear some more stuff like this, much more, make sure you subscribe on whichever platform you found this on. And if you like what you heard, drop us a rating too. You can also give us a follow on our social media accounts. We are at Aeromed Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And once again, that's at Aeromed Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Also, we like to hear your feedback. Of course, improve. So let us know your thoughts by emailing us at aerospacemedicinepodcast at gmail.com. That's aerospacemedicinepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, though, thanks so much again for listening. Stay safe, keep aiming high, and we will see you very, very soon.